Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we are looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film, Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. I'm Pete Wright, or am I Stan Lee? (laughs) Today we are talking about Minute 73, which begins with Senator Brandt's speech and ends with Rogers briefing Carter and Phillips on the map of Hydro Weapons Factories. Back on the show, it's Jonathan and Tabitha Carlisle. Hello again, you two. Hey, thanks for having us back. I thought these episodes would be shorter. (laughs) (laughs) all right so we're back in the camp this is very actually very brief here uh we're finishing up in the camp with everybody cheering uh i don't know if we have anything else to say about that other than it's it's our final pullback otherwise we'll just jump into senator brandt any last thoughts on the howling commandos in the camp uh no but before we get to senator brandt like can Uh i talk about something from the street view when we go through there uh yes well we're the street view is actually right oh, after, is that right after? oh you're right you're right yeah. sorry never yeah. mind never mind no that's okay that's okay <laughs> um so all right well let's jump into senator brant so we cut to uh, senator brant and this is a moment where he's uh you know he's got this little presentation as we find out from the newspaper right after this he's going to be presenting a medal of uh, for valor to his personal friend Captain America. Um, <laughs> how does this play? Does it feel like a political uh, moment for Brandt? Oh, totally. Personal friend <laughs> is a stretch. <laughs> also, I mean, where are they? Where Where does this scene take place? That is a good question. It feels like in America. And why would he expect that Captain America is there? Because even if he was on tour, he's still in Europe, right? Well, if... I mean, we haven't gotten to the deleted scene yet, but... In the deleted scene, it would indicate that they were possibly in London where they were giving away the medal. Well, I mean, we can we can mention that for sure, because they do call out, you know, uh, Colonel Phillips will mention in that deleted scene that, you know, you stood up the senator and uh, several members of parliament. And he hands them a box that has would appear to be the box that has his Medal of Valor in it that he had. So this so this presentation is in. England. That's what I'm gathering. Yeah, that's it is interesting. There's nothing to say that is not. It just doesn't look it doesn't have that that uh, Mexico filter on it or anything. It looks like it's in D.C. It feels uh, very stagey, the whole thing. It wasn't in the script. So I'm assuming that this was something that they added as a reshoot later in the process. Um, And I don't know if it was just because they were like, well, we got to squeeze in our our Stanley cameo somewhere. Where is that going to be? And it does kind of end up feeling like this whole thing was put in here just to get Stan Lee's cameo shot. Mm -hmm. They did shoot this in L.A. It's shot on the southern side of the Huntington Art Gallery. And uh, interestingly, this is also where they are close to where they shot the medal ceremony from Iron Man 2, also where Iron Man and War Machine fought the Hammer Drones. So this is a location used a number of times in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, probably because in L.A. locations like this are probably very film friendly and happy to be used for projects like this when Marvel's paying big checks. So, um, and I don't think they're going to fly Stan Lee over to London to film um, his part of the film. Mm -hmm. The strange thing about it, we'll we'll get back to Senator Brandt in a minute, but the strange thing about it and Stan Lee's cameo is we've got this wide shot of this whole group of people watching Senator Brandt for this presentation. And you have a, uh, a group of people on the left. And then when you cut to the two shot of Stan Lee 
And the person next to him, will, who we'll certainly talk about, he's credited as soldier with general. When you cut to them, you can figure out where they're sitting in context of the group because of the people around them. But when you look at the wide shot, it is like in in no way do the people match uh, Stan Lee and the other person. <laughs> it's so strange. It's it's like worse than, uh, you know, the Oscar substitutes that you get when somebody's sitting in a chair for somebody. It's, it's like more akin to the stunt doubles that you get in Spaceballs or something. Like it's, it's, it's strangely like two people who don't look anything like the Stan Lee and, and his partner that are sitting there. I don't know. It's, it's so weird. I, so I just have to say, I, two things I'm, as I'm scrolling back and forth on this. Number one, you're right. The substitution looks terrible in a Marvel movie by minute podcast. It, it looks terrible <laughs> and every, everybody takes shortcuts. But the fact that I think of the four of us, only one of us who is researching for a movie by minute podcast on this movie <laughs> is the one who caught it, I think is very telling because there is nothing in that swap. And, and I think, again, this goes back to the hand wavy nature of movie making. It's Stan Lee, and I'm kind of looking for that Stan Lee cameo as an audience member. So I'm really only focused on what's the gimmick that they're going to do for Stan Lee. And once it hits, it's there, and I'm excited about it, and it's Stan Lee. And now it's even it's got even more weight given, you know, the loss of Stan Lee. And, and so I never, I don't think I, I don't think I, had you not pointed it out, I don't think I ever would have caught it. I agree. My my question then is like okay so we we do have the people behind them so did they actually shoot the wide shot with all the same people I mean it didn't have to be on the same day but did they purposefully swap them out or was it a case where they got like a clean shot of all the people and Stan Lee and his partner are like are green screened in in the front or something I that's kind of what it looks like I don't know Andy you know, that's uh, it's entirely possible. I wouldn't be surprised if it was done separately and they just shot a plate of the people sitting here. And then, I mean, it doesn't even need to be like a green screen. It could have just been like a, a projection system where they had it playing behind them and then they just lit these two because it does feel very much like they kind of are lit slightly differently than everybody else. I mean, it looks it looks close enough to be matching and it doesn't really distract. But for this sort of thing, for the sort of thing they're trying to do for these Stanley cameos, it seems very much the sort of thing like you're only going to have to be here for 20 minutes. We're just going to throw this general outfit on you. You're going to say your line a couple times and you're done. That that probably is a lot easier on. I mean, because Stanley, you know, an aging an aging fellow by this point, for sure, uh, probably was happy to you know minimize the time he had to uh, commit to these as as fun as surely they were. Mm hmm. What do you think of the cameo in, in the scope of the Stanley cameos? Do you like him being this general that pops up here? I think it's funny because I, I know it's inserted and it doesn't really do much with the story, but I like that it is part of a scene that's happening. I, I like the whole thing that Captain America isn't there, that they thought he was going to be that somebody else comes out because then it's a cam it's a Stanley cameo that you just don't see coming because there's it seems like there's something happening with the movie. And then, boom, he's there. Oh, okay. We can forget about that scene. No big deal. Or, I mean, you don't forget that Stan Lee's there, but, I mean, the scene doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, sure. Right, right. It's just here. It's really only here for this, mm -hmm. right? Like, the only purpose. Is it weird that he thinks that uh, Brant's aide would have been, like, Is are we meant to think, like, he really did think that that's Captain America? He's sort of a daft 
Generation. <laughs> I guess yeah. uh, I do try to put my head in in you know like what if I lived in this time or times earlier or whatever. Like your world would be pretty small. Like I know Captain America toured, but that doesn't mean every single person saw a picture of what he actually looks like. You know, we don't have the internet with the Yahoo news in our face every day or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And to that end, I suppose there's an element of that that you can buy it. It plays okay. And you know, again, it's really here just to get our cameo in, Mm -hmm. but he, as far as his costume goes, he's got all the things. He's, he's, (laughs) He's a master marksman or I have some, some notes, but it, I started taking notes on the pins that he has, but then it just became apparent that they just put all the, all the good stuff on there. And I was <laughs> so like, okay, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go through them all. The best of all that he could be, right? Mm-hmm. That's what You're going to be everything. Um, we also get another cameo. Did either of you or any of you catch the other cameo in the scene? The person sitting next to Stan Lee? Mm-mm. No, I didn't. Pete, surely you did. I, it is a face that I absolutely know, and for the life of me, I cannot tell you who it is. Are you going to make me do the IMDb game? Uh, no, I won't have to. It is Robert Brown, a.k.a. Reb Brown. It's Reb Brown. Yes. Oh, my God. The person who played Captain America in the TV movies back in the 70s. Oh. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Well, that's good. I, I yeah, he looks he looks great. I love when they uh, do this when they kind of um, honor kind of those older properties mm-hmm. by just having the person in, like when Lou Ferrigno popped in yeah. to the various Hulk movies. I just think there's something cool about that that they that okay, they remember so to do that. Now I have to know who's taller, Chris or or what was his name, Mister Brown, Re- Reb Brown. Okay, so who's who, between the two of them? Who's taller? Well, let's see. I, we did Chris Evans, who was, I believe, was he six feet? Um, Red Brown is six foot four. Oh, Ooh. oh! So he's got a little smirk. He's like, yeah, he used to be taller. Actually, seven. He's seventy three now. He's he's down to six foot three. Ooh. He's in that shrinking period. Oh, that's that's right. and, and Chris Evans is could confirm six feet. Yeah. So Red Brown. That's a funny joke, Stanley. Yeah. yeah. You made a funny, a funny <laughs> joke. This is a bloomin' onion of of uh, all kinds of good humor and callbacks and honors of characters. Yeah. It's great. Well done. Yeah. Well done, Marvel. You know, I don't think they did that with the Thor. What was the actor who played Thor in that Hulk TV movie? I don't think he ended up getting Doing a cameo. Getting anything? Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. That's too bad. Nor did the 90s... The 1990 Captain America. I don't think he's popped up in anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting. Or the person who played Red Skull. <laughs> but did the Red Skull did rat, the rat pop up anywhere? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys haven't seen that Captain America, it's, it's worth a it for a, laugh. <laughs> yeah. for a laugh. For sure. Most of them yeah. are. Yes, absolutely. So, all right. So we get this uh, this moment with the senator and Captain America is not here. Brant's aide comes out. And I believe, unless I'm misremembering, I believe this is a picture app on these two characters. Because essentially this is a picture app on this part of Captain America's life. Yeah. Uh, do you do either of you have any thoughts on Senator Brant and, and kind of the way that his character has been used throughout the film? Did you like kind of this element of the story? It was a fine element of the story. Senator Brandt, I don't know. He seems kind of weaselly, but I don't know that he actually is. You know, he just had a job to do. You know, I just wanted, <laughs> I just wanted Captain America to be out there 
fighting and doing what he was super soldiered to do. And so, but I did, I did really enjoy the whole playfulness of having Captain America do it. And he's the character that basically got that to happen. So yeah, totally. No, no, I totally understand. And story-wise, that'll make sense. Um, Movie-wise, that all makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess yeah. we don't really see, I guess if, if Senator Brandt were to like mean anything to me or like I'd be happy or sad to see him come or go, mm-hmm. um, like they don't really show anything like back home, you know, and like Senator Brandt is trying to pass this bill for like the, the we don't see any of that. So no, he's not doing any like good politicking. For sure. No. I mean, like, yeah, we don't see fundraising or right. debating. Yeah. I mean, he certainly is a supporting character who, who to a certain extent feels like a character who didn't come from the comics. He's just somebody who's here just to kind of help the story. And, you know, I, I think that he's fine in context of what, what he's given here in the film. Um, but at the same time, it's funny that when I returned to this, um, after a number of years, I kind of had forgotten that he was a part of the movie until I watched it again. I'm like, oh yeah, there's a whole senator element to the story. So. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, we're leaving uh, the Stanley cameo bit, and we are coming to London. We get a brief shot, um, very CG with the blimps up in the sky, and uh, we we're really setting up location because we're moving down into the Allied headquarters underground. But let's talk about the exterior real quick. Uh, Tabitha, you had something you wanted to say about this little section here. Yeah, I just wanted to talk about those barrage balloons in the sky. Mm, yeah. In the sky. Because I had um, I had thought that they were just a bunch of Zeppelins at first. And I was like, why do they have so many Zeppelins in the sky? So I went searching and um, they're actually barrage balloons. Can I talk about those for a minute? Please like do. What they wear? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So they could reach a height of 14,764 feet. And what they did was they would put wire cables on these and make a net around their tall buildings, especially in London during World War One and Two, to keep um, enemy planes from coming in and bombing and destroying their buildings. So they would actually destroy, you know, a lot of planes, especially in World War One. a lot of planes were uh, destroyed when they would fly into these wires and it would... Um, cut their plane and they weren't as effective in world war two um against planes but it was against the v1 flying bombs and so what i had read was they destroyed uh 231 v1 flying bombs were destroyed in world war two from flying into those nets and london had a like a connection that whole mesh wire system they had a 50 mile net made of those barrage balloons in 1918 around London. That's crazy. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty cool. And then after the war, after World War II, they had all the, well, during the war, when these were my favorite part, I think when these were as effective, I'm not sure which part I'm about to tell when these were as effective, (laughs) they like sent the balloons like, um, over Germany. Um, and they were like setting, setting, um, the woods on fire and stuff like that. There's, you know, they were sending them that way to be destructive in other ways. What did I tell you that you like? Oh, I mean, it was part of that. Not that I'm thrilled about forests being set on fire, but I mean, um, (laughs) but they would send the barrage balloons with like, basically they would just like cut the cables and let them go. So like they would still have cables hanging from them because they weren't part of the net anymore. So they would like, the cables would hit the electrical lines and destroy Mm -hmm. their electrical grid and stuff like that. Like, Oh, that's, I mean, it's yes. very destructive and, and 
you know all that, but at least easy multi-purpose. When they were done, when they were when they were done, they were just like just send them over to see what happens. You know, yeah, just do whatever we can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. So that's what those were. It's interesting because they're so um, uncontrollable in that sense. So it's interesting that they were doing that because it's like once you kind of let them go, you're really relying on the wind to kind of take it from there. Yeah, and so yeah. it's it's interesting that they were doing that, but. Um, yeah, but it, they're fascinating elements that were used in the war. I didn't know that either. So it's cool that um, it is we get that little glimpse here. Yeah, yeah. In World War Two, they weren't quite as effective because they had fitted their um, the German planes. They had fitted wire cutters on the front of their planes so they could cut through the wires, and their planes were able to go to a higher altitude to be able to bomb from above. That they didn't have to be as as low. But I thought those wire cutters on the front of the planes were interesting also and when she when she told me that i was like where have i seen that before i was like oh yeah in batman when he, he takes the joker's balloons away but <laughs> oh my god <laughs> tim burton's batman yeah. oh my god that's a throwback yeah parade so that is so funny yeah. oh, that's really funny barrage balloons so. well and it makes sense here because this you know where this location is this is king charles street which is right in the heart of the uh the government buildings here you can see big ben across the way and and so this is very much like the center of all of the stuff. And you can see why they would have these barrage balloons located above all of this section. So it absolutely makes sense. And, of course, we get to see the newspaper, the Daily Mail. And uh, on it, Captain America to receive medal for valor. And that's the in the script. That was all we got out of the medal. Again, that whole scene was added likely just to get the cameo in there. And it takes us underground. We go down into the the allied headquarters that are right here um, under the London government buildings and uh, very much designed to look like the real headquarters buildings that um, that you would see you know, various, uh, the military officials from London at the time, um, working. And so it feels very real to kind of have it looking this way. So, um, mm-hmm. how does this, how does this kind of transition play for you? Do you like this journey into the heart of London as we kind of shift the story? I like that. I think it's pretty cool. It, you know, it's kind of a throwback to earlier on, you know, when they went into the little antique store or whatever that was, you know, and stuff, and they went down the elevator and, you know, it was all hidden. So. You know, it just kind of is that thing again, like here's another hidden room, you know, underneath. I, I, I liked it. I will share my embarrassment and say that when I first started watching the scene, like intently to take notes and stuff, I was like, where are we? And then, <laughs> then when I started paying attention to all the little like Big Ben, there's the Union Jack, there's the barrage balloons, there's a double decker bus. I'm like, well, how did I not <laughs> get that from the first? I don't know. <laughs> but I think I was I think I was looking at the Daily Mail, like looking for some kind of like locational you know they don't they don't print it out for us like they they do in a lot of movies like you know london england's like oh okay now i know and but they put all the clues in there and i was still like where are we (laughs) (laughs) well what i love about the daily mail is that uh is that it's printed that he's getting captain america is getting his medal valor right but the reputation of the daily mail is it's a right-wing like rag uh, right now, today, it's a it's a right wing rag that that prints like just, you know, it's a gossip rag, essentially. It's it's doesn't have a very good reputation. And so there's something really funny about it to me that um, where the, the Daily Mail is is the 
publication and not like the London Times, right? Mm-hmm. That, that or or something with with a, a bit more of a reputation. And maybe that's to put us in a particular part of town. Um, maybe that's something to sort of locate us in in kind of a different different part of London. I don't know. But um, but I do think it's funny that there are there might have been people walking the street uh, seeing the Daily Mail print this and saying, "Ugh, rubbish. Right. That's more <laughs> lies, more lies from the press. Like there's something funny about that to me. Well, maybe it's because it's related to America. They're like, <laughs> just put that yeah. in the mail. None of, none of yeah, the serious exactly. newspapers are going to pick up on a story about Captain America. <laughs> you know, that's a really that's a really good point. I think you're saying it as a joke, but I think that could very well be it. Right. Like this is the kind of headline that that would never make it in the Times. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's actually, interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I uh, hadn't really meant it seriously, but yeah, I, okay, I guess I'll, I'll yeah. take that one. <laughs> I'm just reading right now. It looks like that there was a, a British historian who wrote that newspapers uh, like the Daily Express and Daily Mail were out of touch, not only with British public opinion, but also with British government policy in regards to the Danzig crisis. So a specific call out there. But yeah, so maybe even then people were looking at it like, yeah. And and today, guess what? It is being criticized heavily for printing sensationalist and inaccurate scare stories of science and medical research, as well as plagiarism and copyright infringement. So doing great, Daily Mail. No notes. <laughs> um, all right. Well, we have this newspaper headline, and that takes us down into this cabinet war room where we are here. This is this payoff, I guess. I don't know. Uh, This is a debate. Uh, In the comics, it's kind of alluded to that Captain America's all of his abilities are stronger, um, but it's not really, you know, called out specifically like, you know, a Superman sort of thing. Um, How do you two read this? Like, you know, he saw this map when he was in Zola's um, experiment room, and here he is marking everything down, uh, the the uh, weapons factories that he had seen on this map. Um, is this, I mean, are these newfound photographic memory uh, powers? Um, like, what? how do you two read Steve's ability to kind of pull all this stuff to to draw it on this map? Even, even if you got into the argument of, like, he's not super or, like, what do people know about him and his superpowers and stuff? Like, I would totally just take that from just him being Steve Rogers and and oh, just, okay. just having, as a little guy, having to overcompensate to survive in the world. To, you know, to be smart or to remember things and to put pieces together, you know, so that he can make his way. Like, I mean, yeah, I know we know he can do it all day, but maybe also there's times when he avoids certain things. He he takes a certain route because he knows that these guys are over here at four o'clock in the afternoon or you know, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. He doesn't necessarily go looking for it. So I would I I totally buy this that he doesn't even need superpowers to to be just focused and be pay attention observant. and to remember the things that are important, you know? Yeah. To be I that. I really, ups- really like that. Yeah. I really like that take on it because it's something that we haven't really talked about, which is that he w- already was made of the stuff to be a great soldier. He just didn't have the bod. Mm-hmm. Right. Like the super soldier serum gave him might have improved some things, but really he was already an astute agent of good. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like it. I like it a lot. I'm just waiting for that comic book to come out, The Agents of Good. Astute Agents of Good. Astute Agents of Good. Well, that's actually, that will be covered thoroughly in our documentary, Boots on the Ground. Oh, dear. I cannot wait. (laughs) The Agents of Good. 
a significant role. Well, one thing with Steve is, uh, you know, he certainly seems to be developing his humble brag. That seems to be kind of an element of him yeah. here. How, yeah. I mean, how does it, is it, is he flirting? Is it just kind of this humble brag? What's, is he just, is he really just trying to like give Peggy more reasons to, uh, to fall for him? How does, how does it play for you this moment between the two uh, of them? It definitely comes off as a humble brag. Yeah. You know, um, he didn't really have to say anything, but. But yeah, but he I'm sure he still uh, doesn't really know how to flirt well. And so he just doesn't know. He's still just but that's kind of good, you know, that they, you know, in talking about the parts of Steve is that even, you know, he's not uh, just because he's Captain America. He's not like this ladies man yet. You know, he's still got some awkwardness. He's still got some social awkwardness and awkwardness with Peggy. That's good. It makes him more human. But. Definitely seems like a humble brag. <laughs> I'm going to go even further down the road of him being like, you know, a smart guy or like, you know, just paying attention to things. And like that, I wouldn't be surprised if that's how he was as Steve Rogers when he was younger. I wouldn't be surprised if he would got beat up for being like the smart guy who ruins the curve, you know, for good grades or whatever, oh, you know. Yeah. And so now he's like, you know, doing something smart and then everybody's just looking at him. He's like, oh, well, you know, I'm like you guys. It's fine. You know, just trying to downplay. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Right, right. That's true. It's interesting how how we uh, kind of get this moment here, and I, I yeah, I feel like there's a little bit of all of that here, and and I'm always curious in this film more than any other Captain America film. Like, I mean, he hasn't been Big Steve for that long. I mean, at this point in the film, it's been uh, you know since uh, late june or early july i can't remember now um so and we're at according to the wiki november 5th so it's been you know not quite half a year and i mean certainly he's been fighting he's been doing stuff but he spent a lot of his time in the uso show and hasn't really been in a situation where he was like this this you know hero and so I can't help but feel like a lot of the things that that come from him throughout kind of especially up to this point in the film before we really get into constant military and now he's Captain America. Like, I feel like a lot of it is little Steve, the puny Steve, still trying to get a sense of who this big guy is and mm-hmm. who he, you know, the the sorts of things that he can do and and just, you know, how people react to him now, which I think is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Like, we don't see a pile of pencils on the side. of the, Like, yeah, he remembers where all these things are, but he keeps breaking the pencils because he's like, oh, shoot. I <laughs> <laughs> we were laughing at an earlier minute. Like, he keeps running into door frames because it's like, <laughs> I'm not used so to being tall. this tall. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that he mentions is the Maginot line. And that was something that I had uh, looked up because I, I wasn't that familiar with this. Is this something any of you had heard of before this movie? It's the border between France and Germany, right? It was like the didn't they put a lot of guns on the Maginot line? Wasn't that like the defensive border? I told I might be totally making this up. Is that a thing? You're not totally making it up. No, they they created structures and cement structures named after a guy that Maginot. But I don't remember what his first name was. I didn't look it up that intently. But no, I hadn't I, I hadn't known it as something to to actually look it up. I didn't even know how to spell it. So Google helped me out with that. Yeah, it's it is the the Maginot line, and it is uh, basically the border of France. Uh, it was named after the French Minister of War Andre Maginot, and it's a line of concrete fortifications, obstacles, and weapon installations built uh, by France in the 30s to stop uh, Germany uh, invading. 
And so it's it's essentially like their own Great Wall, but it really never quite, you know, made it the entire border. It's just spotty kind of here and there. And really, it was just designed to be, you know, a fortification of some sort. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, an interesting little thing. And I, I like that there are these moments like this, like the barrage balloons, things that we're getting in this movie that really do kind of place this very much in kind of the real world, even though so much of this obviously is fabricated for uh, for this fictional Marvel version of World War II. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of takes us, let's talk about the extended scene here uh, before we get to the map, because th- we have this moment where as they turn around, we have a uh, an unnamed extra take the map away, and he and Peggy have this little flirty moment. They turn around to walk out into the main room here, and they're stopped by Howard, who pops in, and then Colonel Phillips. Um, this is a moment where um, Howard has this little chat with him about, hey, aren't you supposed to be picking up a medal right now? And then Colonel Phillips comes in. We'd kind of talked about this a little bit because Colonel Phillips says, you just embarrassed a senior senator in front of a dozen reporters and 10 members of parliament. He gives Steve the medal and he says, you should get a medal just for that. And then they talk about the Hydra cartridge and trying to figure out what it is. Colonel Phillips asks Howard if he has figured out what it is. Howard says, if you believe Rogers, it's apparently the most powerful explosive known to man. This is kind of starting an interesting I don't know, tension? I'm not sure what they're going for here between Steve and Howard. Is Howard jealous because Steve seems so smart and dashing and and he feels threatened? I'm not exactly sure. But Howard says, uh, either you're either to Steve, either you're wrong or Schmidt's damn near rewritten the laws of physics. Okay, let's talk about this scene, how it plays. If we think we needed it, what it's giving to us. I mean, how did it work for you? I don't think we need it. I think it was an okay scene to cut because it really didn't give much to me. And it it is kind of confusing. I don't know, it's kind of weird with Stark being kind of jealous of him or something, because that's not the feeling we get, you know, later on. But if it wasn't, I, I don't know if it would be so much threatened by Cap's size and handsomeness, but by his intellect, I think Stark would be more threatened by someone that seemed smarter than him, you know, or had more intelligence, I guess. I don't see how that's a threat to Stark, though. Like, just that a soldier goes, that thing blowed up good. That's true. And he's like, oh, <laughs> I'm threatened. My intelligence is threatened by that. That's true. Yeah. Well, then, then then it's weird for him to be like that. Yeah. You know. I think I'd like it better if we saw, I think in my mind's eye, I can manufacture it. But I think if we saw on camera a little more twinkle in Stark's eye, like, you know, rewriting the laws of physics and then like, oh, what could I do with that? Yeah. I agree with that. I actually like the scene. And this is the first time I think I've watched a deleted scene and thought, I don't know necessarily why they cut it, because I think it's an interesting exchange having all of these people together in that little conversation space. But it's performatively questionable, because I think that setting up that, like Stark setting up that weird sort of presentation of like preening or peacocking in front of Steve is not useful. I think you could do the same scene, but have them feel like they're on the same team Mm -hmm. and it would be a great scene. It would be a great scene that would totally set up the research sequence that's yet to come next week. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, there's an element here that I I don't know what they're trying to do. I, I kind of do like the Hydra cartridge. Again, I struggle with the fact that that's the only thing that Stark is studying. Like, why isn't he also holding one of the, like, Arnimulation guns? You know, something else to say, I'm studying this and this because all of this is using this Tesseract power, and I want to see what it's doing. But the only thing that he seems to even acknowledge 
is that that Steve brought this Hydra cartridge back. And, and that to me is the thing that I I end up being glad that they cut it because if it was if it was here, it would have only been saying we're not paying attention to any of that other stuff. Just this one little thing that you happen to grab because it's you and it, it just plays weird to me. Well, I think and I think that's a good point, Andy. And I, I I think it's it's probably fine to do that. But I do stand by the fact that Cap took this artifact from the warehouse and we don't see that artifact again until next week when he's doing research on it. And I like the fact that this is a beat that says here's a, a, a thing and it's familiar to us as an audience that we've seen this before and now it's been handed off to Stark and we're going to go back to the lab later. Like I, that just makes sense to me to have that connective tissue. So I'm an island, but I miss it. <laughs> <laughs> well, because the connective tissue would have been next week. Like we're going to have that. Like now we know that Stark has it and is studying it. Like I just don't I don't feel I like I don't know that this. you know this, Andy. That's a week from now. <laughs> it's a week from now. I have to wait. Yeah, I don't think we understand. That's like three what... hours of podcast conversation before I get to talk about that. I'd say I don't know what, if we know what next week is. I think we cease to exist after a few episodes here. Yeah, yeah. So, I'm sorry for you, but that's true. This is over. And poof, it's the snap. Just, Just like you've been blasted with an normalization gun. Right. Yeah, exactly. Normalization. I'm threatened that you know that. <laughs> All right. So we have this little scene here, however you're going to read it. Uh, and then it really, I mean, it's funny. It cuts to this map that we're now looking at out in the middle of the room. I really, the only thing that really gives us a hint that this scene was cut is when we cut to this scene to have this conversation uh, out in the room we, when we're out in front of the map. It's that now suddenly we have Colonel Phillips uh, right here with them as they're talking about it. And so that's that's really kind of the only thing that, that gives any of that away is that suddenly he's there like he just walked in real quick. Yeah. But what we do see here, we see this huge map that they have in the middle of the room, and we see five factories on it at this point. Uh, from what I could tell, one is near Luckenwald, which is south of Berlin. One is in South Prague, uh, in what would have been Czechoslovakia at the time. One is north of Nuremberg. One is in southern Austria, which would have been what Steve had just raided. So it's interesting that they still have a flag on that one. And then one in northern Italy. So that's what we see. On the map that Steve had seen in Zola's room, now maybe these just hadn't been transferred yet from the map that he just marked, um, only two of those were actually here on this one. So I guess at some point they'll add more here. And clearly Hydra's going to be, there are, there are a lot more because Steve's got a lot of rating to do in his montage that's coming up. So there will be so plenty of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, does this work okay for you? Do, does this just feel like we're setting up like, does it feel like a setup scene? I guess you know we're we're getting a sense of all of these factories out there. What are we going to do about it? Like, how do you how does how do you read into this scene? I get it. We've been watching the movie. Uh, you know, we know who Captain America is. We know who Steve Rogers is. We know who he's capable of to some degree. And now everybody seems on board. But even then, I'm kind of distracted how much freedom he seems to have to run the room. Like, mm. you would still think there'd be like, okay, what do you know that is valuable? Okay, here's what we're doing. I'm I'm just surprised just from watching movies with military stuff and the tropes that they use that he has so much freedom that he seems to have. Yeah. Or not freedom, but, you know, authority. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It is odd. I don't know if I have anything else to say, but it is odd. It's fine. He's Captain America. (laughs) He is Captain America. I know. And the other part of me is just like, yeah, but he's Captain America. Yeah. That's okay. The other thing that that struck me is like, um, I mean... 
I don't know. It's it's really is a point of contention about how much control Hydra has uh, at this point in in the war when they've essentially also kind of cut ties with the Nazis, with the Nazi party. I mean, they had been a division, kind of a science division of the Nazis. But then we saw when he killed the three SS officers that came to visit, which was months ago, that that was essentially him saying, no, we're fighting the Nazis too. And then you see this map and, you know, through the montage, like, it seems like they have hydro factories everywhere. And I don't know if this is just the, you know, cut one head off, two more sprout sort of thing where they just kind of keep popping up and it's just a surprise to everyone everybody that they're so uh, robust but does it seem like i mean i don't know how does it play like weird that hydra is so spread at this point like or do you buy that this is a this secret organization that had separated ties from the nazis but is everywhere well yeah that that like with every montage we get you know 25 new factories to raid like, that's kind of what it feels like. Like, we get this acceleration of time uh, from our perspective on behalf of the commandos and of Captain America and of the U.S. Uh, allied military operation. But what we're not seeing is the Hydra montage and that they're also growing. Right. They're also doing their doing their stuff. All we get is like eventually we'll get Schmidt pulling up to rubble. You know, we don't get to see the growth part. I assume that will be covered in the boots on the ground documentary. Well, because it's important to have that perspective for a balanced approach. Uh, in order to understand Hydra's untold story of loss in Switzerland, you have to show how they grow, Andy. And Schmidt could have had like some, you know, he had at his factories. He seemed to kind of be like under the radar a little bit, you know, planning things and that, you know, uh, Hitler wasn't aware of. So in some of his other factories throughout, you know, everything could have been kind of brew and just a little low key until he like activated his sleeper cells or whatever and kind of took over. Well, he did actively kill Nazis, though, like earlier in the movie, like he did disintegrate them with the Zolinator, whatever it was like. I feel yeah. like that might have been a red flag for Hitler, which is actually the sequel to Boots on the Ground. Uh, it's called Red Flag for Hitler. That one's a musical, though. <laughs> I mean, that's that is a good point, though, like, uh, you know, to the extent that he was working for Hitler, but also trying to basically usurp Hitler and kind of take over the world as a only, uh, you know, mad uh, supervillain can do. The fact that perhaps the factory that uh, the SS officers visited is just like maybe the only place or one of the few places that the Nazis know exists as far as where Hydra is stationed. And he has been slowly building all of these other operations around Europe as a way to kind of keep, you know, to, to the whole Hydra motto, you know, cut one head off, two more sprout up. Like he's constantly trying to keep these other heads ready to burst out so that he always has a place to work. And I, to that end, I can see it. And I can see like that forethought as far as what, what Schmidt is trying to achieve here, that he needs to be ready to always have another place uh, ready to go. Okay, so where we are in the movie, I was not prepared to go here at all. But are <laughs> we supposed to believe that is Red Skull in charge of Hydra or is he just one of the heads? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I feel like it's, well, I don't know. I, I read it that it sets it up like he is the head of Hydra. Uh, but I don't know if that's, 
um, just because the movie kind of feels that way. Um, Hydra obviously is something that does manage to keep going after the fact. So I don't know. How do you all read it? We've watched most. I think we still have a little bit of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. to finish, but we've watched most of it. Um, and they seem to that seems to muddy the waters a little bit as like the origin of Hydra and, you know, what it is, where it is, if there's some kind of actual power behind it, besides just Red Skull finding this this cube or or, yeah, if, if it started with the Nazis or I don't know. Well, I mean, it seemed to, um, I, yeah, I don't know if it started with the Nazis, but it certainly seemed to be kind of what they had as their, you know, scientific research division, their own version of SSR that they could kind of funnel money into building crazy new weaponry. But to that end, yeah, like what's, and to that end, it does seem like Schmidt is heading that up, at least as far as Hitler is concerned. But once you step away from kind of how they're tied into the Nazis, yeah, that's a good question. Like, did Schmidt have his own head of people that he was also then kind of answering to, not in the scientific reserve studies way that he's doing to Hitler, but just in the scope of what Hydra's trying to accomplish? Well, there is also this perspective, like, I, I don't, I, my memory of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is uh, shaky uh, right now. It's been a long time. But, like, could it not be uh, like fashioned that Red Skull is sort of the originator of this part of Hydra or we uh, was there am I, am I mistaking there's some older Hydra pre Nazis I don't know my my memory is also kind of shaky because I, I thought that at one point there was some kind of storyline that kind of seemed like maybe there was some cosmic power like not the cube but you know like some, yeah. that some cosmic intelligence behind it I guess that might have been with the dark cold stuff well I because know. I know in in season seven, there is this time they do the time travel story in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which monkeys around a lot of stuff because it goes back to the to the 30s. And so there is I mean, there is pre Red Skull Hydra, but he could have been part of it. Right. Like yeah. he could have been part of that head. So I guess I'm just looking at like I we see a lot of villains between the 1930s and, you know, Alexander Pierce, you know, Robert Redford, who had Hydra. So uh, it just feels like he is a principal originator of the Hy- the modern Hydra. Sure. Red maybe, Skull. maybe of the modern Hydra. Yeah. I mean, just looking in the wiki, I mean, it did start with Hive, the cult that uh, it was kind of that, uh, yeah, that right. cult that's group right. Hive that um, uh, who is a powerful inhuman exiled to the planet Mavath by ancient inhumans. Ever since his banishment, the cult had been determined to bring him back to Earth to commence a planetary takeover. And then it evolved, took many forms. And then what it says is its most recent incarnation coming into existence shortly after the rise of Nazism in Germany under the leadership of Schmidt as the scientific branch of the SS. And that's when it took on the name Hydra. And so I, I don't know. I'll have to do some more digging into that to kind of have more conversations about uh, the further development and what happens when Schmidt gets killed. Okay, so we'll stop here and then yeah, we'll, we'll come, come back, back to it. We'll come, we'll come back. back to it after you guys <laughs> do the Inhumans minute, and then we'll come back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, there's something about it though, as a fan of Agents of Shield, that just wants to uncover that really Powers Booth is timeless, and he was the head of Hydra from you know babylon to today we just we just didn't know it mm-hmm. it's powers booth <laughs> <laughs> it's always powers booth it's always mm-hmm. power booth. yeah the apocalypse of the marvel universe <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, all right. Well, I don't know if we have anything else for this minute, so I think we can safely say let's wrap it up, and we'll come back next time to talk about the next minute. Uh, so uh, why don't you two remind everybody where they can tune in to uh, your other your other shows? Well, we have no plans to do the Inhumans minute, so um, I guess you I guess you <laughs> so that's everybody's still open. Lost. Yes, yes, it's still open. <laughs> Yes, uh, theprincessbrideminute.com. If you want a full podcast that you can get the, the beginning, middle, and end, go to that one. Don't go to my <laughs> other one. <laughs> Inconceivable. Awesome. Well, uh, we will be right back. Uh, thank you both so much for, for joining us here on the show. We certainly appreciate it. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow to talk about Minute 74. So uh, thank you so much, Pete, as always. Maybe I'm the leader of Hydra. Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega. And this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show.